Okay. Hello. Uh, welcome to Finally, the podcast for Michael Furtick. It's my pleasure to host as my guest, Stephen Fox, whose biography I am very pleased and have the honor of telling you. And I also have the honor of hosting my old friend, my old high school friend, um, here on the podcast. Um, Stephen, please say hello, and then I'll tell them all about you. Hello, Michael. Hello, everyone listening. It's a pleasure to be here. Stephen is an extremely unusual character. He is a real personality. He has chosen to make his life in classical music, which is already unusual. He's been nominated for a Grammy. He leads multiple orchestras, including the Clarion Choir and Clarion Orchestra of New York. Uh, he serves as a music director of the Cathedral Choral Society at the Washington Nath National Cathedral, and is also the founder of Musica Antica St. Petersburg. He has been thriving since I've known him in classical music, and he chose very early, and we're going to ask him about this, to make a life in classical music. He has won many prizes. He studied at Dartmouth, but also at the Royal Academy of Music, where he won the Sir Thomas Armstrong Prize, the Peter Lahore Award, and the Alan Kirby Prize. He's been named an associate of the Royal Academy of Music at the age of probably, if I did my math, 30, maybe younger. Um, it's a treat to welcome you. You are someone who has performed and led orchestras across the planet. You are one of the most famous and most celebrated conductors in classical music leaders in, the word I was not, I was not looking for the word leader, I was looking for the word maestro um, in your generation, in our generation. And I have known you since high school. Um, <laughs> Stephen and I used to ride the bus together, went to each other's houses, like hung out, like got pizza in New York. And uh, it's a pleasure to continue to know you. Stephen, is there Thank something at a, high, at, a, at a high level, some major component of your biography at a high level, because we'll get into some details that, I, that I've grievously missed uh, before we begin? Anything that, any, any way you'd like to set, set the table before we begin? No, I thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm very honored. <laughs> My pleasure. You're also the subject very recently of just a glowing, magical love letter review from the New York Times. I read it with uh, pleasure. It was, uh, it was like uh, a gift from the New York Times. <laughs> and it was incredibly uh, discursive and lyrical. So how did, you, how did you choose this vocation? This is not, um, this is not even atypical. It's extraordinary, extraordinarily unusual to choose to be a classical music conductor. How did, how did you choose the vocation? And, and really, when did you choose it? And then when did you know it was going to work? <laughs> yeah. Well, music was always a big part of my life since I was a very young boy. Uh, I always sang in choirs. Uh, I mean, I also, I, I remember singing in, in sixth grade at Horace Mann. We did a production of Patience by Gilbert and Sullivan. And oh, wow. I sang the role of Grosvenor, the lead role, but I sang in, in an octave higher than it's written. 
because my voice hadn't changed yet. None of our voices had changed. Um, and that's when my parents saw, wow, you can really sing. And so they encouraged me to sing more. And uh, when I got into the eighth grade, they said, um, why don't you join the Glee Club? You know, you have to do an artistic uh, uh, selection for one course. And so I joined the Glee Club. And by the way, I think at that time I was also singing in a rock band uh, with some friends at Horace Mann, um, which was called Ground Zero before Ground Zero existed. Oh, right. uh, Do you want to know something? I think I remember that fact. Yeah. I don't think I heard you perform, but I think I remember some of the characters were in that band. Some of whom are actually also pretty well known by now. Oh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, in the world, yeah. So um, I joined the Glee Club, and I didn't know much about classical music at that point. Uh, Johanna Samari was the conductor leading from the piano, very strong personality. And I remember we were singing Saint-Saëns Requiem, which mm. <laughs> is still a piece that I bring up with my colleagues. It's not very well known. Um, mm. Most of my classical music colleagues do not know of this piece. It was beautiful. The Lacrimosa, which is one of the most poignant parts of the Requiem text, uh, lamenting. It was mm. so gorgeous that I remember just having chills down my spine mm singing this piece in the first rehearsal. And so I was kind of immediately bitten by the bug. And um, mm. in the next concert, we sang Mozart's Requiem, which is a very famous, uh, one of the great masterpieces of choral literature. And uh, I was really hooked. I thought this is a fantastic, uh, this is a fantastic course. Uh, I'm loving mm. this. Um, the repertoire is, is, the music is so amazing. And I thought the teacher was so inspirational. And I remember Samari said, um, for those of you who would like to learn how to read the music quicker, I offer a course in music theory, and I encourage you to take it. So I did. Uh, I, that next year, I joined music theory. And in that course, he started teaching us how to read music. And I also found that to be fun. And um, it was a small class, and we had a lot of fun together. And I continued through music theory uh, through 11th grade. And at the end of 11th grade, he said th that was AP music theory. And he said there were some of us, some of the students were seniors. They were going on to college, but some of us were uh, still had a year left in high school. So at the end of the year, he said, well, this is the final course that we offer in music theory. For those of you who are not graduating, please come to my office Monday morning at 8 a.m., and we'll talk about what you can do next year. And wow. so there were a few of us. And I remember the first student went in to Samari's office and he came out and he said, wow, I'm going to study composition with Mr. Samari next year. And I thought I was also headed for composition because I had started to write music. And and uh, Samari had looked at some of my pieces and he knew that, that I was a composer and uh, but I walked into his office and he said, I'd like you to study conducting with me because you seem to have the personality and the skills for it. And I thought, wow, okay. And so I studied conducting privately with him um, as, a, as a course. Uh, he would sit at, uh, in his office, he'd be at the piano and I would start waving my arms and he would play and critique my conducting. It was really uh, a you know, it was a privilege to have a private lesson. You, you, the simulation was that you were conducting him exactly. in those classes. Really? Yes. That's yes. Very interesting. And, and he, uh, 
you know, as with everything else, he kind of just threw me into the deep end. You know, he, he gave me this really thin book. He said, read this book first and then come back next week and we'll start conducting. It was <laughs> a book on the basics of conducting. <laughs> and then uh, he just he said, OK, I'm going to play. You conduct this piece. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but he was there for one second. What is in a book on the basics of conducting? But what what does one find in a book on the basics of conducting? Uh, I'd love to go back and revisit this book. It's, but is it as simple as like, you know, you hold, this is how you hold the baton? <laughs> yes, I think yeah. there's, but even before this is how you hold the baton, even before that are some, were, were some very basic pithy pages about leadership, you know, wow. basically explaining that uh, a pianist plays the piano, a violinist plays the violin, a conductor, the instrument of a conductor are, it is other musicians, people. And so you have it, it explained that you have to be a leader of people. And um, and then it got into the technique of how to uh, speak to an orchestra or a choir in rehearsal, how to address choir and orchestra. Uh, it was an old book. It was quite formal. It was probably written from the 1950s or 1960s. The author was, I remember, Archibald T. Davison who was one of the conductors at, at Harvard at one time. And, and it was a very well-written book, but again, very, very thin, um, not long, very pithy. And, um, and then it got into, here's the basic beat pattern. You're in, if you're in four, four down, left, right up, here's the basic three pattern down, right up. <laughs> and it so you that, know, has grass. That's what the conductor does down, left, right, up is coming from the beat pattern. It's re recreating the beat pattern. I'm sure most of us don't know that. That's, that's sort of second nature to you, but that's the, literally the, what you're doing. You're counting the beats with your, with your hand. Exactly. It's a kind of sign language to communicate with singers or players as the music is being made. So beat one is down, beat two is to the left, beat three to the right, beat four up. Cool. And uh, 30 and years on, it's almost 30 years ago that you read that book. It just, <laughs> I don't want to dwell too long in the book. It's almost 30 years ago. Does it hold up? Do you still, do you think it was mostly right at the time? Oh, about absolutely. That? I, I think wow. it, it, it's a great book. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I, I love that it didn't get too, it didn't get caught up in, in too much detail. I think more modern conducting books really get into the detail. Um but I like that uh, Samari gave me this book as an introduction. And then in these private courses, he we got into the weeds about uh, lots of different details of analyzing scores. Um, and that, I think, is the biggest thing in the end is the preparation. You know, if a conductor knows the score, same way as the director of a film or director of a play, um, the most important thing is that the director or the conductor knows the music, not just mentally, but actually has a relationship, an emotional relationship with the music and the score, we call it, and has a vision for how it's going to play out and sound. And then that all has to happen before the first rehearsal. I had a teacher in college that said the first rehearsal is like the conductor's performance because all of the preparation has to happen before the first rehearsal. The director, conductor, walks into the first rehearsal and that's when you start sharing 
your vision for the piece with the performers. And in a way that is like the performance for the conductor or the first performance. Very interesting. You say that my father was a film director, as you know, and a commercial director. And he used to say that when he walked on the set, he had to be so ready that immediately when he walked on the set, he would first thing he do is put the, say, put the camera right there and establish that he knew what was up and that he had a vision for the day and for the shoot. And uh, it sounds like you're describing a, at least a similar phenomenon and a similar moment where you helm this, this orchestra that's looking at you and waiting for you to express your vision of the piece. Am I, am I hearing you well? Yes. And I think I've been told that when, you know, the first time a conductor conducts a major orchestra or, or a choir or an opera company, um, everyone's judging that conductor and trying and and oh, uh, the word on the street is that you know these great orchestras that are playing for different conductors all the time they start judging you from the way you walk onto the podium yeah <laughs> at <laughs> least about the at way least you're, you're holding yourself they can because they they play all the time these are full-time orchestras that they can sense something about the leader from from just the first vision of that person walking onto the stage, whether they have confidence, whether they, they feel that they know the score, that they're, that they're going to be a strong leader or. or so let's not. talk about that. We're, 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 we're skipping to a place that's very interesting, but we're getting to something that is, I think, extraordinarily important and often diminished or undervalued. We're in a moment right now in, for example, in social media where, you know, TikTok or Instagram, it's all about a kind of aesthetic or an image. And yet these things are in our current uh, philosophy often diminished and, and dismissed as unimportant or superficial. But is it, is it, it seems to me, I'll go first and you can decide if you, if you care to agree, but it sounds as if you do, but let me not put words in your mouth. I do think we all have reactions like this in our lives to people we meet on the street, to people we meet in the store, to people we meet on the on the on the theater stage or the orchestra stage or in the pit or on the podium to professors to teachers to people we see on TV who are trying to get our vote and uh, we do have a reaction to how they dress how they hold themselves how they stand how they walk their facial expression um, and these reactions are primitive and sometimes sophisticated but they're certainly there and it seems to me that we do not train for this very often in our uh, upbringing. Do you think that we ought to train for this? Do you think that there is value in classical sort of quadrivium, trivium, rhetorical training and grammar training and this is how you stand, this is what you do, in order to develop leaders uh, for now and for the future? Or do you think that it's just something that the people who want to do these things will do and learn on their own? I think it's important to talk about these things. Um, and, I, and if I think about, I haven't really answered your question, when did I decide to be a conductor? I think- No, I'm, I'm coming, we're coming back. We're, we're definitely back coming back. But yeah. I'll just say the times in my education, which continues by the way, a musician is always learning um, and growing, hopefully. Um, those sort of, uh, you call it the X factor maybe, those things were addressed at the beginning you know, I think in some of the first conversations I had with Samari and then for me recently later in, you know, already midway into my career when I did 
uh, a special workshop with a great maestro, uh, two great maestros, uh, Larry uh, Ratcliffe and Donald Schleicher in the Czech Republic. Um, those are the two times that I remember teachers addressing um, some of these um, intangibles about about leadership, about um, you know, de developing your vision and then how to communicate that vision and how to, um, how to dress, uh, when you're leading a rehearsal. Um, when I studied and it was relatively recently in, in my in educational terms, you know, about five or six years ago, when I studied, uh, in the Czech Republic with these, these two maestros, uh, Schleicher and Ratcliffe and, and, and I just hadn't, you know, I'd been through a master's degree. I'd studied it in, in college, but I hadn't heard <laughs> discussion of those intangibles since Samaris for so many years. And it Amazing. was, it was wonderful to hear, to hear Rack, you know, Ratcliffe say just, you know, um, you, to, he watched me conduct, um, conduct a rehearsal with the, with the orchestra. And he said, great, you know, you're, you're very nice, maybe too nice sometimes, you know, you should be nice. You don't have to be that nice. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, that was perfect for me because I think I was, after I heard him say that, I said, you know what? I am trying too hard to be nice. You know, I should just be myself, you know, and just be natural. And I, I think I am nice, so I don't need to try extra hard. And I think that's what he yeah. was trying to say. Yeah. That's helped yeah. me. You know, he said, um, you know, he was very old school. I don't think a lot of teachers would say this today, but, you know, he, he said, I, I always... I shave in the morning before getting in front of the orchestra. I said, why? I said, out of respect for the orchestra. I, I want to look like I, I made an effort to, to look respectable. <laughs> well, do you know, Stephen, I shaved for you today. Oh, so okay. I <laughs> I'm so honored. I, I did the same for you, Michael. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Thank um, you. And, and then, yeah, and uh, addressing the orchestra, he said, it, it took you 30 seconds to say that. You, you needed five seconds to say that. You know, you... You, you used five sentences basically to ask them to play softer in this one passage. And he, he said a lot of orchestras would consider that to be a waste of time. You know, they're, they're, every second of rehearsal counts, just like your father would have known, you know, directing a film. You can spend all the time you need in preparation, but once you're on the set or you're in rehearsal, the clock is ticking and you're paying people to be there and everyone knows it. And the efficiency side of things is something that, that is respected in the field. Um, That's very interesting. So just, yeah, getting, very. yeah, that, that kind of feedback, you know, particularly that stage in my career when I'd already been conducting for a number of years, I just thought was, was very valuable. It's mm -hmm. not as though I've taken on every single bit of advice. I don't necessarily mm -hmm. shave mm -hmm. for every rehearsal, but I, of course, of course. it was, I think that, but the point there about um, showing respect, and it is something that that uh, will stick with me always. So, okay. So let's take a step back. We were in high school. You had a proper epiphany. You're a lucky person in your life because you have an epiphany. You can attribute some of your career, your trajectory to a few moments, really. And then you had specific training. You had a relationship with a very special mentor and teacher and he saw something in you that you cultivated, that he cultivated together. Um, but yes, you're right. Let's get back to the point where you think about this as a vocation, right? You're, yes. you're still in high school. I mean, did you decide at that time or later that this would be 
how you would pay the bills, how you would spend your life. A little bit later, uh, I so the culmination of that senior year studying with Samari was that he asked me to conduct Big League Club at graduation. Uh, you and I were in the same class, Michael. So for our graduation, he asked me to conduct a piece from Haydn's creation underneath the tent at Horace Mann. And it was with the orchestra and chorus. And that was just such a thrill and an honor for me. And then both groups went on tour together to San Francisco and I was singing and I had no idea I was going to do this, but, um, we had about four or five concerts on that tour. And after we gave the second one, he said, for tomorrow's concert, he came up to me and he said, tomorrow's concert, I'd like you to conduct the Vivaldi Magnificat. I said, what? And I said, I'm not ready. I haven't prepared it. He said, you have tonight to prepare it. <laughs> I stayed up all night going through the score and trying to get no ready. No kidding. To conduct. What's what that? a vivid story. What yeah. a vivid story. No kidding. Yeah. What a vivid story. Here you are in high school. You've just finished high school and you're pouring over these pages overnight, staying awake, drinking coffee, whatever you're doing. <laughs> and you, you have to lead the orchestra the next day, the choir the next day. Yes. And um, that was typical. That was a typical Samari, you know, he'd, he'd like, to throw, like throw you in the deep end. I wonder why. I think maybe it's so that, you know, because uh, in his experience, I guess he realized sometimes you just have to get on with it. And and as a conductor, you have to learn by doing it. You know, you can't uh, there's no practice room for conductors. You can't like a violinist, you can't go into solitude and practice uh, the same passage over and over in the privacy of your own home you have to learn while doing it in front of other people. And that's a scary thing because it's public, but there's no other way for conductors to get better than to conduct. So mm. I remember conducting that performance and I look on back on it now and I'm sure my technique was terrible, but I think there was some ounce of musicality in there that, that helped me lead this performance. I remember the concert master, Rebecca Stokes, I think that's her name. Um, I remember Rebecca. She was a very good violinist. I don't know what happened to her, but she was a very good yeah, violinist. Very too. good violinist. She was leading the orchestra and we were friends. And at one point I did something wrong and she said, can you give a clearer downbeat there? I said, sure. And I, <laughs> but I remember, I remember that vividly and uh, you know, uh, but I was bitten by the bug. I just remember, yeah. uh, the, I remember the last chord and just being so, Gratif feeling so gratified and thrilled that that I got through the piece and I held the chord probably too long the last chord because I thought this is great I'm just gonna relish this for a moment. Da, da, da. <laughs> just keep it, it just, going. It just definitely went on too long, but um, it was great. And at that point, I can't say that at that point I decided that I wanted to do this professionally. I just hadn't gotten there that far, but I definitely. Uh, fell in love with conducting at that moment and knew that it's something that I wanted to do further when I got to college at least. And so when I, when I went to college, I, I went to Dartmouth college, which is a liberal arts school and it's not necessarily a music school, but I went there because um, they, uh, after I applied, um, seeing that I had a specialty in music, I felt that a, a couple of the teachers really pursued me there, the director of the Glee Club, for instance, Louis Burkott, 
you know, had a special, gave me a, a voice lesson when I visited. And I, I felt as though I'd get a lot of attention there. And I really did, um, uh, being one of the few music majors. Um, I felt that they a lot of opportunities were given to me that I may not have received in a, in a bigger school with a lot of music majors. And I had a great experience at Dartmouth. I, I started singing in the in one of the choral groups. But, um, you know, I had such a powerful experience in high school with Samari that there was almost no chance that I would immediately fall in love with uh, another, a new maestro, like a new teacher or, or conductor. And I remember being very critical of the conductor at Dartmouth, you know, when I started there. And I actually called Samari back home and I said, you know, I'm not satisfied with the way rehearsals are being led. They're not. And, and I don't find the conductor to be inspiring. And and he said, this means it's time for you to start your own group and to start conducting your own group. And so for my sophomore year, that's what I did. I had met at by wow. that time, I'd met a lot of good singers in both in the group I was singing in and wow. in other groups. And I held auditions and I organized auditions and I, I basically put together a magical group of 12 singers. 12 of my favorite singers. The word, the word you used was madrigal. Yes. Madrigal is um, a Renaissance art form of, of secular music. So, for instance, uh, the Renaissance settings of Shakespeare sonnets and Shakespeare poems uh, Thank you. Would, would be a madrigal. And um, I called the group, uh, and madrigals can often be sung one on a part, so it can be very small groups. And I called the group Modern Madrigals because I wanted us to sing madrigals, but I also wanted us to sing more modern works that were based on like that a smaller what, chamber form. And so we did everything. When you, from, when you say modern, how modern? <clears throat> um, I guess at that point I was we were still in the 20th century, so I was thinking of modern as 20th century. So okay. I, you know, we did we did a lot of Renaissance music, um, and not only secular music but also sacred Renaissance music. And then we, we, the repertoire spanned all the way to the 20th century. Remember, we did a lot of Poulenc, the French mm. century composer. Mm. Very difficult, but uh, so satisfying to sing. And uh, Debussy. So um, this, it was, it was a challenge, but it was really a great experience starting this group the modern madrigals and i had uh and and if i'm not not mistaken that was the and you should continue a second but if i'm mistaken that was maybe the first time but maybe not the first time that you started to pull on this thread of connecting older techniques and components uh with either older or newer pieces right this is something that has been a through line i'm I'm, we're going to come to using gut uh, on the strings, right? Uh, yeah. And some of the period pieces that period instrumentation that you use later. But is this something? Am I picking up on a thread, or am I missing? Am I overemphasizing this, or missing the point? And you should be free. Feel free to answer candidly. <laughs> so you, you mustn't worry about my feelings. No, I think um, this. Yes, I think this was an early manifestation of my. Uh, Actually, I think you're making a connection that maybe I hadn't made before. I think you're oh, right. Wow. I, I had um, the combination of old and new was something that was interesting to me then. And then you're right, uh, has really has been very important in 
my career and the way that I try to program music. So mm -hmm. that's true. Um, and, uh, you know, as we'll talk about in a little while, the, the older instruments is something that had been introduced to me at this point. I hadn't become as passionate about it yet, but it was um, it was an idea that was sort of lingering in the back of my mind already. So Wow, that's cool. Um, so this group, the Modern Madrigals, we, uh, uh, it was a thrill uh, to start this group. And, and at first I was planning that, you know, sometimes with small groups, you can direct the group, but you don't necessarily need a conductor. And so I wasn't planning to necessarily conduct. I just thought I want to start this group that I'm going to enjoy seeing and with singers that I want to sing with. So, um, but when I put them together, I auditioned everybody and then we're in this room and realized well, someone's got to lead this. So I, you know, I start leading the rehearsals, um, not necessarily conducting, but kind of leading from the side of the arc, singing with the group, but, but leading rehearsals in the way that a, a director or a conductor does. And, um, at some point, some of the pieces that we started to perform, it felt that we did need a conductor. So I, I would start conducting the group and uh, I would still do it from the side, though, because I was singing and conducting at the same time. And um, we started um, again. I thought maybe this is a group that just gets together privately like a club and we sing and we enjoy the music. But all of us as a group started to realize this sounds really good. We want to, we want to share this with other people on campus. So we started organizing performances and when we started to perform and um, that that's really when I realized this is what I want to do with my life. It wasn't, oh my goodness. Wow. it wasn't just the conducting side. It was that I loved the behind the scenes. I, I loved organizing the rehearsals, organizing the concerts, um, putting together voices that I thought would work well together. This is so a kind of maestro and impresario combination. Is yes. that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually I was just speaking with my dad about this the other day and my, my father, Mike, Michael, I know you know him, Norman Fox. He also was uh, a singer, an early rock and roll singer. And, um, but then he, he also had an impresario side. You know, he started his own businesses in the clothing business, but he also he kept singing alongside. And I, I told him the other day that I really I think and my sister is the same way. She's a photographer, but she runs her own business. And and we were talking and I, I said to my dad, I think both my sister and I get this from you, this sort of um, combination of the arts and being a little bit entrepreneurish. And we both enjoy it so much. And cool. and that was the thing that really um, spoke to me early on in college. And that's when I knew this is what I want to do, um, with my life. And, and even, you know, fast forwarding, uh, however many years, I guess, uh, you know, 25 years or so, um, I, I still find the most satisfying work. I, you know, I've had the privilege of working with large orchestras and, and opera companies at this point too. Yeah, um, enough. but I still find the most satisfying thing to be working with and running my own group, you know, uh, my own groups. I have two of them now, uh, that the, the satisfaction of, of, uh, being a leader, not just on the podium, but also behind the scenes and, and having, uh, the ability to, um, make decisions that, that all do in the end impact the music, but are, but sometimes feel as though they have very little to do with the music. Uh, I find that satisfying. And I believe that all of those decisions from um, ticket prices to, you know, how we 
uh, communicate with our audience. All of these things that a lot of conductors don't mess around with, um, particularly when they get to a certain stage in their career. I find not only that it's satisfying, but I also find that in the end, it does play some role in the artistic product and the way that we're presenting our music to our audience. If I'm not mistaken, so the examples you gave of ticket prices and maybe lighting and so forth are very practical and they're very real. And I think that puts meat on the bones of what you're saying. In addition, if I'm not mistaken, you have at different times mounted performances of, for example, chamber music in examples of rooms, of built rooms, for example, in Europe that were constructed for the purpose of chamber music some centuries ago. And you mounted these performances of pieces that would have or could have or in fact were performed in those self-same rooms for audiences because you understood that the atmosphere, the welcome, the reception, and also perhaps the, the acoustics were part of the design of the experience of that performance and perhaps may have informed even those composers at those, at those times in creating those works. Is that, a, is that an example? Of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And I think I think a lot about venues and where we're performing the pieces for exactly that reason. Um, when oftentimes we hear chamber music in these very large halls, and it really wasn't which is which is great. Um, I, I'm not criticizing it, but I do try to look at the the size and the, the nature of the spaces that music was written for because you know these great composers they were they were geniuses and i'm not you know I'm not exaggerating they they thought about every aspect they knew the instruments they were writing for they knew the voices they were writing for and they knew the spaces they were writing for and they wrote music that is tailor made for those spaces so i do love trying to recreate sometimes as much as we can in a modern world but trying to recreate the atmosphere in which these pieces were were first performed and first uh, conceived Ding, 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 ding. That sound is an actual bell. That was not me. That was a random sound that marks something that we like to do on this podcast called the speed round. Okay. So we're going to pause from our interview and do a speed round. Here's the speed round, the first dose of the speed round. Stephen Fox, pastrami or corned beef? Neither. <laughs> that is an incorrect answer. Oh, okay. Ed, Norton, Ed Norton or Leonardo DiCaprio? Ed Norton. That is correct. London or New York? New York. Okay. Is Joe Biden doing a good job or a bad job? Good job. Do you put ketchup on hot dogs? No. Correct. That is the correct New York answer. And for all of you who <laughs> have put ketchup on hot dogs in the past, you are in fact violating the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> Back to the interview. Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned was that these composers were geniuses and I alluded to it earlier. We teased it. Um, there's still a first question I want to get back to later, which is when did you know your vocation was working? But uh, just, I want to pull, I want to just highlight for our audience this, this insight you have about, had about the strings of the, of the bows and of the instruments. You uh, insisted at some point that your, that your orchestra have uh, gut instruments, uh, instruments made from gut, not from synthetic fibers, but from gut, uh, as they had been in the days of the composers. And I believe this was an example of your 
understanding or appreciation of the precision of these genius composers. That, that in order to appreciate their music, you needed instruments that in fact looked like, functioned like, or constructed like, or preserved the same way. The instruments uh, were at the time of the composition and which were used in performance. That's right. And it was in college that I started to develop a strong interest in this. Um, in high school, I remember when we performed Haydn's Creation, uh, we did have a period instrument orchestra, which it refers to what you were just talking about, Michael. Uh, period instrument means an instrument that either survives from the time period of the composer or is a, a newer replica of those instruments. And we're still talking about, so let's say Haydn's, Haydn's orchestra. We're still hmm. looking at violins and violas, cellos, oboes, flutes, uh, trumpets, uh, horns. But all of those instruments have changed. They've, um, they've developed over, over the years. They've developed in some great ways, but um, they've also, they've just changed. And um, going back to the, uh, there, there was sort of the, the avant-garde, I would say, in the, really started in the 1960s, but then became really a big thing in Europe in the 1980s and, and 90s when, when we were in college. Uh, period instrument orchestras started really creeping up all over Europe in particular, also in the United States, but really uh, in a major way in Europe. And um, I took notice of uh, a lot of mm. recordings that were coming out of Amsterdam and England um, in particular and Germany. Um, and I really fell in love with uh, a, a couple of groups in particular, and the, uh, they were British groups. Um, and uh, a conductor who's who's still making great music, uh, John Elliott Gardner, who conducted mm. some of the music at the um, at the coronation recently, mm. um, and and his group, the English Baroque Soloists, the Monteverdi Choir. Um, I, I really became fascinated with with their recordings, with the recordings of Sir Roger Norrington, who I later got to know very well and, and followed around a bit. Um, That's cool. And Christopher Hogwood. So I would I I um, started. I mean, we had this wonderful music library at, at Dartmouth Paddock, um, and I just remember going in there and listening uh, to a lot of these recordings that were coming out of England um, on the original instruments. And mostly repertoire from the 18th century, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and then also later repertoire eventually, Berlioz performed on period instruments, um, Verdi. Um, so it's something that I became very interested in. And it's one of the reasons that I decided to do my master's degree when it came time to, to uh, look at the next step after college. I decided to apply for a master's degree in London. And i that's one of the reasons I went to the Royal Academy of Music is that I was enamored of the choral tradition in England and the great, great wow. choirs that are there, but also the period instrument movement there and the virtuosic period instrument groups that existed there. And I would say when I was there uh, in London for two years doing that degree, um, that I learned as much by going to concerts and hearing these groups that I loved so much and new groups that I learned about. I learned as much in those concerts as I did in the classroom. I think that was just as important mm. to me is to be seeing concerts in London uh, as it was to get the great instruction that I also received there in the classroom. 
you, I believe you've also, uh, in your academic uh, work, but, but in your professional work as well, I think you've also uncovered or recovered some pieces and some uh, sort of lost compositions or some neglected compositions from some uh, first or, or, or not first tier composers um, that have proved to be of great interest to you and audiences. Um, how much has that been important to you has that proven to be over time something of which you're especially proud or was it a moment in time for you? And uh, are there any particular discoveries of which you're especially proud? Uh, or, I don't know if I should say discovery, but recovery or discovery, you can say it the way you want to, of which you're especially proud and signal, signal recoveries that you think contributed in a way to your understanding or to the audience understanding that stand out. Yeah, it has... Um... It wasn't necessarily uh, the uh, a main interest of mine in in college, but then or in in graduate school necessarily. I started to become interested in finding new manuscripts when I was in London at at the um, doing my master's degree at the academy. I think that that is when um, I became interested in in. Um, making new editions of pieces that did not have modern performable editions. Um, there's so much music that's written that is not accessible to performers. You know, it's, it's sitting in an archive somewhere and never got published. Um, and there, there's music by great composers. I mean, there's music by Mendelssohn that was never published until very recently. Yeah. Um, there are Haydn scores that, that we realize we're, we're sitting in Italian archives then and nobody, Nobody ever told anyone that they were sitting there. <laughs> so I, I did, um, I guess that is uh, around the time when I was doing my master's that I became interested in the rediscovery of, of works. And actually this, uh, this also um, kind of develops into a, a, another branch of my work, which, which has to do with Russian music. And um, one part that I that I left out is before I actually went to the Royal Academy of Music, there was a year there where I did another project where, where I, I went to, I applied for a postgraduate grant from Dartmouth uh, to go to St. Petersburg, Russia. Yes. And having developed the interest in early instruments, um, I proposed to go to St. Petersburg and to start Russia's first period instrument orchestra. At that time, as I'd mentioned, there were so many period orchestras popping up in Europe and there were a decent number in, in the United States as well. But as far as we could tell, none in Russia. How did I know this? Because I went to study Russian um, for three months during my junior year at Dartmouth. And uh, I'd actually started studying Russian at Horace Mann. It was, uh, it was offered then by um, Riley. And <laughs> I, I really, um, I fell in love with, with the Russian language at Horace Mann. And um, when I got to, to Dartmouth, I thought for a moment, I thought maybe I'll, I'll study. I think I studied French for one term, but then, you know, they say with Russian, you know, with language and the, and the culture, you know, once, once you develop a little interest, you know, it never, it never subsides. And mm -hmm. so after a term of French, I, I somehow just decided to go back into Russian again. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I had great, great teachers at Dartmouth in, you know, language, I think is a real specialty at Dartmouth college and the, the Rasias method. And I, I loved, um, 
all of the teachers I had there uh, in in language. They really uh, their love for the the, the Russian language was um, contagious, and so I decided huh. after a couple of terms there to do a term abroad in St. Petersburg, studying at the St. Petersburg State University. And it was just a language course. Uh, it was not a music course. And so there were 10 of us from Dartmouth College that went on this trip. I was the only music major. Uh, some were language majors and then others mm -hmm. were history majors. But, they, you know, it's pretty flexible who can go on these, these foreign study programs. And um, it was a great group. But wow. – um, and Michael, tell me if I'm digressing here, but I just thought it. Well, we, we we can we can redirect it. You know, you can. It's okay. I'll I'll I'll. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying this digression. I'm I'll sure the audience will. The, the short version of the story, but I, I'll I'll get back on point in a moment. <laughs> um, we, we we will. Come, this is a good setup because we are going to come back to Russia because I want to ask about Russia later. Great, great. So we this was the year 1998. So it was a very interesting time there. Uh, Yeltsin was still the president of the Russian Federation. It was wild. The 90s were a wild time in Russia. Um, the, the economy was sort of in free fall when we went. The ruble had just been devalued. And so it was actually a very, very difficult time for Russians. And, uh, you know, if they'd, they've saved money, a lot of them, you know, would be saving cash underneath their bed and then suddenly you just lop zeros off the value of, of of what they had and it was um it was probably in in some ways you know but but it was a it was a time where i felt it was exciting it was they were moving towards democracy in a way it was sort of like a wild west period there mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. felt and i still feel that way looking back at it um so it was a difficult time, but I also remember, first of all, how much, how intrigued people were to meet an American. I think they, um, you know, and and we were so excited to meet Russians and, and to hear about their experiences. Many of them had lived through the end of the Soviet Union, you know, just sharing stories uh, with with these people was, was such a great experience. And I found them to be so warm. Russians, you know, when you, you met them and then suddenly you were invited to their home the following week and, you know, they'd host you and um, we just, just met the most wonderful people on that trip. And because of this, the, the economic challenges that were taking place there at the time, on our meager student budgets, the, the silver lining for us was that we could go to the opera or the symphony every night and pay a dollar for an orchestra seat. And oh so I started doing this as a music major, but I started enjoying it so much that I started bringing these other members of the, of the group from Dartmouth along with it cost you six bucks. So yeah. let's do it. <laughs> and it's amazing that over the course of the three months that we were there, all of these folks, most of whom really had no background in music were loved going to hear the symphony, loved going to hear the opera. And to me, that was a very important demonstration that it really, great art, it's really about exposure to great art. That I think uh -huh. that uh -huh. if people can experience it enough that that you you do develop an appreciation for it, it's an, an acquired taste. And um, that was an important lesson for me. But 
one of the last concerts I went to there uh, in 1998 was uh, a performance of early music. And it was a, a student group from the Moscow Conservatory. And they were performing in a beautiful old hall, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, in, it looked like an 18th century hall, the small hall of the Philharmonic in, in St. Petersburg. And they were playing 18th century music and early 19th century music. It's perfect marriage of music and space. And it was about 10 players, and it was so virtuosic. They were led by their teacher, Nazar Kajuhar, this wonderful violinist. And they were all students from the Moscow Conservatory. And I thought they were playing, it sounded like they were playing on period instruments, uh, but I couldn't tell. I, I knew that they were playing in the, with great style. You know, it's one thing to play on the authentic instruments, and it's another thing to play. Um, in, in an authentic style that um, is appropriate to um, 18th century and 19th century music. And that's another thing that I became interested in. I think in the 80s and 90s, we started rediscovering a lot of writing that composers and performers did in the 18th and 19th century about how to play music from that period of time. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was like a renaissance, really, and a rediscovery of of the ways that these of the the techniques that singers and players use to perform that music. So um I thought that the style was impeccable and it was so energetic and I just loved this performance. And I realized oh. that that this performance was the only really convincing performance I had heard of 18th century music when I that I had when I'd been in Russia. I'd heard the most phenomenal performances of later music, Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, of course, I mean, performances that I'll never forget. But whenever I heard earlier music, say Handel or Mozart, I always felt that it was played in a kind of overly romantic way, kind of heavy, laden. Very interesting. And then this performance was different. So I, I, I went backstage, which was quite easy in that hall. You just kind of open the door and go backstage. Uh, <laughs> there was no list. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I felt that I, I had to introduce myself to this director. And I remember speaking to him and I said, I've heard several performances since I've been here of, of Mozart and Rossini, but no, nothing like this. This was so stylistic. I said, were you playing on period instruments? I couldn't tell. And he said about half and half, you know, we don't have that many period instruments here in Russia. We had to borrow from a museum some of the instruments, there's a maker, but we're doing our best. And I said, you're doing great. I mean, it sounds amazing. And um, and I asked him out of curiosity, I said, is there a period instrument orchestra in either Moscow or St. Petersburg? And he said, no, there isn't. There are small ensembles like, like ours. There was an attempt to start a, a period orchestra a few years ago, but something happened with the funding and it kind of fell through. And And I didn't have the idea at that moment, but when I got mm -hmm. back to Dartmouth and I finished up and uh, my senior year, and I was thinking, what what should I do next year? I knew I wanted to go back to St. Petersburg because I just uh, loved the city. I thought it was so magical. I loved the architecture and and the art and and the music and the people. And suddenly it clicked for me. I thought, why don't I go back to Russia and see if I can put together the musicians from these different small ensembles and make the first period instrument orchestra. And so I applied for this grant called the Reynolds Grant, which I think is designed in a very similar way to a Fulbright grant. 
but it's um it's a, a Dartmouth grant for uh, graduating seniors to go to a foreign country and perform a project that they devise on their own. And I remember proposing uh, this project to go and start Russia's first period orchestra to a panel of professors. And they, they gave me this, this stone cold look. They really thought I was crazy. I said, you're going to go and you're going to start this orchestra out of nowhere. You don't know anybody. And, but luckily um, I had done a couple of concerts with my modern magicals group uh, during senior year. I expanded the group and I did two concerts on campus as part of my senior project with the modern madrigals that recalled some of the music that I had heard on my trip in Russia. So the first piece was Rachmaninoff's Vespers, which I did with 40 oh. singers. And then the second concert was a, a compilation of different opera and ballet, ballet excerpts that I had heard going to the Marinsky theater, going to the Muzorsky theater and there were oh. two professors on that committee that had attended those concerts. Right, and right. I remember one of them, Monica Otter, who I believe is still there and a great music lover, said, you know, I've been to Stephen's concerts and I think we should give him a chance. <laughs> wow. So wow, wow, wow. They gave me a grant for a year uh, to go to St. Petersburg. And that's where I started Musica Antigua St. Petersburg and uh, as Russia's first period instrument orchestra. And my first idea, getting back to the repertoire, Michael, I, I haven't forgotten about that. I, my initial plan was to go and perform Mozart, Haydn, Handel with this orchestra. But when I got back to St. Petersburg, I started looking around at these amazing buildings. And I thought there had to have been music written for these buildings. There had to have been Russian music written in the 18th century that we just don't know about. We know about Glinka and Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, but that's all 19th century music. St. Petersburg is an 18th century city. So quite, quite literally. Yeah. Absolutely. Built in the 18th century. And I just thought, what was played in these what music did they play in these buildings? What music was played in Catherine the Great's palace, which is now the Hermitage? So that's mm -hmm. when I started digging in and going into archives and finding Russian 18th century music that had been unknown and unpublished. And I discovered music by a certain group of composers that are still not very well known, but Bornyansky, Berezovsky, Fomin. And we started, Musica Antigua started performing those co Russian composers together with Mozart and Haydn. That's sort of how we constructed most of our programs. And that was really the beginning of my long research project that continues to this day in um, in Russian music. Marvelous. You know, um, I want to move beyond music now and talk about some other topics with you. But I do want to highlight something, uh, which is this. As I listen to you, I've been lucky to talk over uh, the years of my life with many artists and one of the, and about their careers and their interests. And one of the things I've noticed, which is also apparent in talking with you, is how often successful artists locate their experiences, their inspiration, their epiphany, their milestones in their journey 
alongside particular teachers or mentors or inspiring artists they encounter along the way. And I don't think that's especially true of people in all other fields. Um, you might meet a doctor who says, yeah, you know, the, the doctor was my inspiration to go be a medical doctor. But I do hear from artists often the, the inspiration they derive and mine and plumb from other artists. And I do pick that up in listening to you. Um, uh, I do think it seems to be especially important for, for people who are artistically oriented and, um, and perhaps people who are, I would say, particularly oriented in the performing arts, um, yeah. as you are. I like to change topics, though. Oh, please, do you have something you'd like to say? Because I do want to move on to something, some other we'll areas. Just, of, we'll just like add that I, I think that's so true. And I think there's still that the tradition of apprenticeship that yes. exists in the arts. And yet, and yet, that is true. And yet, when, when you, a great artist, want, you know, have some downtime, you're just as likely to want to go see a performance or hear a performance, right? And to derive further inspiration, right? I, I see that often with actors, they'll go to a museum and look for some inspiring visual representation, a sculpture, a painting, and somehow be bowled over by it and carry that with them or they'll go see a performance of a play. Yes. Um, I've, I've, I found myself sitting at, at many plays in my life next to an actor who is sort of, I recognize and say, or near an actor I recognize and hearing them laugh or bawl or respond or comment in the interval to their, 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 uh, people, their, you know, their company. So it's a, it's a pleasure to see it. And I, and I don't know that everyone listening will, will have had that experience. And so it's worth highlighting. Um, okay. I'd like to change topics a little bit and sort of interview a little bit more. Um, are you, are you a perfectionist? Yes. And does that sound attractive to you or unattractive to you? Is that a burden? Is that something that is a burden on the people around you? Is it something that works for you? Is there no other way? Talk about being a perfectionist. You have been described as a perfectionist by others who know you. Uh, and so I'm not surprised to hear that you know that about yourself. Um, but what, what do you think that does for or against you in your life? Well, the first thing is that I know in music, perfection is not possible. I, I maybe in life, perfection is not possible. I think that's the... I just lost your sound. I just lost your sound. I just lost your sound. I can't hear you. Um, hang on. I can't hear you. Funny. Um, the mic, I get the mic, but I cannot hear you. One second. Okay, try again. Yes, you can hear me now. Okay, let's take that as a restart. You're a perfectionist. What does that do for or against you um, in your life? You said music. You said music is it's not possible to be per perfect or reach perfection. Yes, and I again, I had a great teacher who who well, here we taught go. me that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bill Summers, you know, Dartmouth College said um, that each you know, every you want every performance of yours to be closer and closer to perfection, but it's it's never actually achievable. But you still aim for it, 
and I I think that is definitely the way that I um, that that I lead uh, my musical life. I it can drive me crazy. It can drive the people around me crazy. There are times where perhaps I have not let go of something, you know, uh, where I should have let go of something sooner. Um, you know, the great thing about preparing a concert is that at some point, you know, the rehearsal's over and you, and you perform and, and I, I'm a perfectionist in the preparation, but, um, I do let go in performances. And I think this is something that allows me to really enjoy what I do. Um, that I, I, I believe, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I, that I, I'm not, I'm not actually such a perfectionist in performances themselves as they're happening. For me, I, I, a different side I think comes out, which is the performer side, which is in the moment, making it happen and being emotionally engaged. Um, but it's that preparation uh, that allows me to feel the freedom to let go in a performance. Um, I, I, think, I think both Mick Jagger uh, very famously said something like this, and Dudley, or, or has said, and Dudley Williams, who was the oldest performer, I think he performed with Alvin Ailey till he was age 66, he's a friend of my father's, um, he used to say, so why are you still performing at age 65, 66? And then he continued with another company into his 70s. He says, I'm just trying to have one perfect performance. And Mick Jagger, <laughs> Mick Jagger said, I think it was Mick Jagger, he said, I'm just trying to have one perfect show and then I'll stop. <laughs> was, you know, and yeah. um, so on a, more personally, and we don't have to do it too long if you don't want to, does it, without revealing something you don't want to reveal, but just revealing a little bit of the feeling of it if you're willing to, does being a perfectionist get in the way of your life somehow? Does it make your life more taxing or difficult? Our listeners are people who are successful in their own right, uh, generally, and we all are curious about what these things that make us, you, others, special, different, hardworking, ambitious, we're all always curious about what impact those qualities have on people we admire um, and we only see part of your life. We see the performance part of your life. You and I are friends, which is lucky uh, for me. And I get to see a little bit more. But is there, without without saying anything you don't want to say, is there is there something about this that you feel is like a monkey on your back, a, a tax? Does it has it has it affected deleteriously some of the relationships in your life over time that you wish it hadn't, or is it not that big of an impact because it's located to music and it's then you get the release and the, ex, you know, you get the exhale at the performance time. Tell us a little bit more about how it might affect you. Yeah. I think at times it may affect um, my happiness. It's mm -hmm. hard. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I, I make a, I try to really um, plan times during the year um, when I can turn off, but I find it yeah. sometimes hard to turn off yeah. i actually takes me you know a few days to just turn off and then i've got you know and then maybe i'm i'm already back to work so i try to plan for I, knowing that now if i'm planning you know a little vacation or something i have to sort of plan in that those 48 hours in which i i still it takes me just time so, to turn off and yeah let me ask you about that in particular because something i've 
I, I've, I've seen, heard, experienced um, in other conversations like this with people who have made those similar noises. During those, let's say, 48 hours, what you characterize as the 48 hours of transition, do you thrash at all? Do you find yourself to be uncomfortable to be around? Have you ever taken two days to go before your, your friends or your, your family to go just ahead to make sure you get it out of your system <laughs> before and you're more pleasant to be around? Is there any work around like that in your life that someone at your level of performance, your level of excellence, your level of perfectionism, your level of, of high timbre, when you need to release, do you, do you have a, a moment where there's a transition where it's a little bit turbulent or no? Yes, there is that turbulence in the transition. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of maybe like going ahead of my wife or something like that by two days. But um, you know, she's she's so great. I mean, my my wife is a, is a big part of of my life and and my balancing of things. She's really even keeled. Um, you know, she's she's thank God she's not a performer. I mean, I know fantastic couples who are so happy who are both performers, but in my life, I think it's probably best, you know, that um, she's just uh, a great. Um, I, I like to think for for each other, we're we're great foils for each other. Uh, but um, yeah, I I have maybe it's something I've taught myself too. But um, I don't. I try not to go back. I know a lot of performers who the day after the concert they go back and listen to the recording. This, oh. this is extremely painful for me, so I just don't. <laughs> I don't do it. I don't do it anymore. I give myself having learned. We don't that, talk about Woody Allen anymore, but he refuses to watch the film as soon as it's done in the editing room. He says, "I'm yeah. done with it." I can't, I can't, yeah. Yes, I, I I totally get that, and um, I may go back, but I'll go back. It has to be for me months later because the fact is, it actually will take the enjoyment out if I go and watch it too soon, and. The satisfaction that I feel after a performance is very important to me. It's 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 something that keeps me going. It's something that keeps me motivated. Um, there's a lot of sometimes anguish that goes into the process for me. I yeah. struggle with things, yeah. but I can there it. has to be there has to be the the satisfaction at the end uh, for me. Otherwise, why you know why am I doing it? And so mm. I do. I have figured out over the years a little bit of a system for me to enjoy the the um the final part of the process and after the process and i so give, I us, give to, us a technique give us an example like a, even a pedestrian example like you have a ritual where you have make a grilled cheese the next day i don't know <laughs> is there some is there some thing you find yourself doing or some trick you found yourself playing whether simple or 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 complex that uh, you can share it's uh well yeah. Part of what part of what we do here, part of what I'm interviewing here for is you're you're excellent at what you do. You're unusually excellent at what you do. And people who are excellent at what they do, often under the covers, do extraordinarily different and sometimes odd things that they don't talk about and share. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what makes them successful. And then when they reveal it to one another, they often say, Oh my god, I also do this. I also, you know, sit in a closet before I go out to to party or I often, uh, you know, go in a day in advance for, you know, before my date for a, for a vacation or I, I do after a big, you know, launch of a new product, I, I go and have Chinese food at the same place just cause I know I'm going to do that you know, every time. Yeah. Um, Truffaut, Francois Truffaut, I believe, um, I think it was he, I think it was he indeed. 
he, before he made every film, he went to the same bookstore in Paris, the same one, and bought the same exact books on filmmaking every time. <laughs> and then when he's done with the film, he threw them away, and then he, he would buy them again the next time. And, I, and it's interesting to discover these yeah. idiosyncrasies because they are odd, unpredictable, unforeseeable items, devices, crutches, phenomena yeah. that are harmless, that people use to thrive through all the difficulty of becoming and being and sustaining excellence. So yes, what's one that you might do that, that you might be willing to share if, if one, if there's no, absolutely. First, can I, it just reminds me the Truffaut story of another conductor. If I could share with you the great choral maestro, Robert Shaw, um, he had a piece that he conducted many, many times. He always would buy a new score with no markings. I mean, conductors yeah. become very attached to their scores. I've got all these yeah. behind me that I, and I need my mark. I like my scores. They feel comforting to me, but he was the opposite. He wanted to start with a fresh score each yep. time. It's interesting. So to answer, um, it, this is great. I'm glad that you're even getting me to think about this because I, I do think that, that there are some idiosyncrasies in the way that I prepare and also come down from performances. Um, I mean, a lot, the main thing is the mindset. Um, that as I was was saying a little a little bit earlier, I um I I, uh, I used to be very critical after performances and the days after it and think about um what it was that could have been better. I mean, I still of course know what could have been better in a performance, but I really make an effort um to. Uh, after performance to to be with I, I like being with the performers I like living it after a performance so if there's if the if the singers or the orchestra is going to a bar after you know even if I have a, a donor reception or something like that I still want to go afterwards and hang with the people who who did the concert with me for me this is part of the experience and I like talking about what just happened it's actually a very important part of the of the experience for me. And there have been times where that hasn't happened and I go home and I get really depressed and it feels incomplete. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, that is something that powerful. I, it's very powerful. And then, um, and then I like staying in it for a few days. I, I, I try not to plan the next project to start the day after that can be very jarring for me. Uh, but I like, you know, I like being, people sometimes respond that, you know, before a concert, I'm terrible at responding to emails, but like after I like being on email, I like communicating with friends of mine who were there and hearing what they thought. And for me, it's very important to, to be in it for a few days and to, and to really live it through and then come down. Now, if that's a performance that I'm happy with, you know, and it's part of the experience to stay up. If I'm up, you know, I want to stay up. If if something bad, you know, sometimes there are performances that I'm not pleased with and I kind of feel like ah, it could have been better. Um, that's different. In those cases, I mean, I still want to be around folks because we want to talk about the things that went well. I really try to be positive at the end. Um, it's important It's important as a leader for, for me to be positive with the people who perform with me. Of course. But actually, it's also really important for me that the payoff has to be there. Otherwise... Um, you know, I found at one point in my career, I was being too hard on myself and I felt that I was um, burning out. The, the, the satisfaction 
needs to be part of the cycle for me. Otherwise, it's hard for me to find the inspiration to put in all of that hard work on the front end. I have a, I have a, a quick question and without dwelling on it too long. Um, a performance might last half an hour, an hour and a half, sort of, let's say, on average. Uh, it's a two-part question, but if you can answer it relatively quickly, um, how long through the performance, at what point through the performance do you know it's not going well, number one? And when you, when you sense it's not going well, how often, this is very important, part of my question, how often are you able to turn it around and make it a good one? Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like a tennis match, you know, a five set tennis match, you can always turn it around. And so if I feel something isn't going well, I just really try to make it better in the performance. Um, uh -huh. But there are certain days where you feel like from the moment you step up there, you're, this is magic. This is magic. And as I've conducted more and more, I realize that a lot of that has to do with me. Um, a lot of, a lot of the energy comes from the conductor. I really believe this. Yeah. And, um, and so this plays into some techniques too, Michael. I mean, I, I used to, before I really understood myself and what I needed, um, I used to, you know, do a lot of stuff on the day of a performance in the morning and say, I can, I can have a full morning and then maybe I'll take a little nap in the afternoon before the concert and then we'll have the sound check. I don't even do that anymore. I find that yeah. the less I do on the day of a performance, the better I am and the better the performance goes. Yeah. So I really try to conserve energy that day. Because yeah. uh, if breakfast, if breakfast with the with the 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 work colleague is just negative, then you just might carry that energy into the rest of the day. For absolutely. example, I'm making it up. Absolutely, yeah. and and even so, I, better better to take no risks. I, <laughs> yeah, as I've gotten older, I've I've gotten more and more strict with myself about this. I used I I used to say, oh, I can do a few emails too, but even that, it like it can be a little bit yeah. draining, and and the performance yeah. is too important for me to take anything out of it. So. On days of performances, sometimes I have a rehearsal, but I really try to, other than the, the rehearsal and sound check, just really try to focus, look at the score a little bit, but not too much. And and um, so a lot of it, a lot of, yeah. So I think um, in terms of turning around a performance that isn't going well, sometimes an intermission helps. Um, it's one of the reasons I like concerts with intermissions. You know, if the first half doesn't go great, you can... Uh, you have an opportunity and sometimes I'll even go and talk, you know, you give like, like a sports coach. I, I do that. I mean, I try to give. I love intermissions. Yeah. I resent it when there's no intermission. I resent <laughs> it. Like, yeah. Even if it's relatively short, even if it's an hour of music, I want an intermission yeah. uh, or right. I do. I think that, and I was, okay. 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 And I'll just say, you know, you are, go the other yeah. way too, you know, sometimes the first half has been so great. And I've gone backstage and everyone's celebrating. And I go, wow, that was amazing. That was amazing. And then the second half is not as good. So I don't do that anymore. If the first half is great, I just have poker face. Keep it together. Keep it together. Play it cool. Exactly. Play it cool. <laughs> okay. So look, there's no, there's no way to talk about today or have an interview today without acknowledging that we're in a very political moment in our world. And um, we don't have to spend more time on this than you wish to. But I want to um, ask you about what you think has been happening to the left. You grew up on the left in American politics. I, I did too. 
And um, I just want to ask you openly, which is an open-ended question. You grew up as a, in a very left part of America and a very left part of political America. Um, what has happened since you grew up and since you were in elementary school, high school? Do you feel at home in the left? How do you feel about it now? Uh, if you wish to pass on the question, you can. <laughs> um, but is there something that you're willing to share about what you think you've observed or might, might have observed and what do you think might be going on? Well, I think um, to um, I think we're living in a obviously a very polarized time. I, I I am it's true. I grew up on the left. I mean, I think I there was a moment in college uh, where maybe I was um, a little more conservative than I've been at other times in my life. I'm definitely back on the left. I mean, I'm a registered. Uh, registered Democrat, but I definitely consider myself to be um, more of a centrist. Um, and I see, what I do see is, um, I still actually am a believer that, and my father always said this growing up, that that most of the country lives in the middle. You know, um, I think that voices on the extremes, I think both left and right, um, have been given a megaphone in recent years with social media. I think, you know, the way social media is designed to reward um, statements that will get people upset and uh, incendiary statements. I think that that has definitely contributed to uh, a feeling that we have right now of extremism on, you know, on all sides. Um, and I think um, our our news cycle, our profit-making news cycle, also profits from incendiary news news lines. And I think that's why our, our news has gone also very extreme. But I'm still a believer that most people are reasonable. Um, I, have, I have friends who are on – dear friends and, and also people I work with, supporters who are on both sides of the aisle uh, politically and – uh, or all sides of the aisle, I should say. And, um, so, and, and I find, I, I like, <clears throat> I, I've taken a step back myself from social media. I didn't find that I was able to have productive conversations with, mm. with people through that medium. But I find that, that uh, with friends, um, even friends who, with whom I disagree on things, we're able to have very reasonable and civilized conversations. So, I feel you're, you're um, an artist. That's still the best so, way for people to communicate. You're an artist, and and I, I don't know if it is true, but it seems to be an expectation that artists are or will be left of center or very left or more liberal. Is that something that you think makes sense? Is it something you think that is overobserved as a phenomenon? Is it less true actually up for, up close? You deal with artists all the time. Are they? in general, not quite as left as they might be imagined to be? Is it something that you're expected to be as an artist in American working artist life? Does it matter? And I ask this partly because, remember, you, you spent time in Russia. The, so, the ex-Soviet guys were kind of Reagan people when they came here because they lived the authoritarian left life and then escaped. Um, but it seems to me that artists historically generally are more left and... Um, it also seems to me that they're expected to be left 
and anticipated to be left, which is a little different from expected to be left. Is that, is that true? And does it come up in your life? Does it come up in the lives of the artists you know, speaking not about yourself, about others? Is it something that matters? Is it something that should matter? Is it a question that should be asked or is it not really that interesting? I think, I think your observation is correct. I mean, if I, if I think about it, um, well, if I think about performers that I work with and I think about the staff, uh, staff members that I work with, I would say, yes, my impression is that that is more of a, a liberal, um, liberal leaning group of people. Um, I haven't necessarily sensed that on boards of directors. I think um, that um, the board boards of directors that I have experience with um, are more of a mix, maybe but kind of seem kind of evenly conservative or liberal politically. Well, it's kind of the donor class, right? The donor yes. class, many will be business people or old families or whatever. Yes. That's a different population, right? Yes, yes, it is. And are people expected to be liberal? I think it is. I, so I know a few performers who are quite conservative and I do think that they feel um, sometimes out of place slash uncomfortable and, and more so as, as our, as, as things have become more polarized. Yes. And, uh, um, but I, I, you know, I also think that um, musicians are good listeners. Uh, great. That's a great, that's a great thing to say. Of course it makes <laughs> sense. And, and keep going. And that um, that makes it so that people, at least, I mean, I'm speaking for the organizations that I work with. I can't speak with or, or about organizations that I don't work with. Uh, but in the organizations that I work with, I think that there, um, there, there's a, it's an open space for people to be able to express their their views. Uh, openly, even if they disagree with the, with the rest of the group. And I, that's something I appreciate about, um, about both of the organizations for which I am the music director. But it sounds to me like there's hope, uh, for those of us who worry that there's too much polarization, there's hope. Okay. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That is an actual bell that is ringing at a random time. It's time for the second speed round. Okay. Are you ready for the second speed round? Yes. You now know the gig. Korean barbecue or Japanese sushi? Stephen Fox, Korean barbecue or Japanese sushi? Japanese sushi. Great answer. Specifically, wait, do you have a, ever have a Korean barbecue? Can we talk about Korean I barbecue? Have. I like Korean barbecue. I do, but okay. I love you sushi. You like you kalbi, or kalbi or bulgogi? I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, excellent. No, that's fine. Okay. What is your favorite piece of sushi? Yellowtail or uni. Excellent answer. Okay. Ooh, or uni. Ooh, okay. Very sophisticated. <laughs> okay. What is your secret guilty pleasure? Like a website like IMDB or a casual computer game or girly drinks or whatever you like. What's do you have a do you have a secret guilty pleasure? Wow. That will suddenly now not be secret. Um, <laughs> because you're about to say it in a podcast. Oh man. Um it does not have to be prurient or lascivious or controversial. Just is there something that you like to do? <laughs> it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, gosh. This is a serious man who's all about work and wife and no, virtue. I, mean, I, I love tennis. I love, I, I'm obsessed. I watch tennis obsessively. I'm watching. Okay. Watch tennis. Yeah. Great. Who's your favorite player right now? Um, I like Yannick Sinner a lot. I like um, I 
I like Djokovic, I like Nadal, and I, I, I do like Alcaraz. It's very interesting, isn't it? One of the world's great classical, living classical music conductors is a tennis maniac. It's amazing. Okay, do you ever play video games or computer games? No, but I used to, when it. I was growing up, I did. Yes, of course you did. But <laughs> I was going to ask, if uh, do you, is there one that you loved when you were a kid? I remember playing remember? with an NHL one, a hockey one that I loved. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Well, sports <laughs> stuff. Okay. All right. Going back to the interview. Um, is there something you wish you were really good at earlier in your career? Um, or is there something you wish you had realized earlier in your career? You talked a little bit about um, the kids today would say mental health, but I mean, just sort of like how to make sure your perfectionism does not own you all the time. You talked a little bit more about how to plan your day before performance. Is there anything else like that that you sort of wish as a business person, as a leader, as a conductor, as a founder of orchestras, as a creator, as a maestro, as an impresario, that you, you wish you'd learned earlier or that you did learn earlier, but you wish you did, you'd wish you'd done earlier in your life that you think it would have yeah. been a good choice? If it feel if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Uh, oh, I've wow. learned this lesson with patrons quite a bit. Um, patrons are patrons are for our listening audience. Patrons are people who give donations to underwrite either the annual budget or special projects that might that might come up throughout the the year or through the years of planning. That's right. And um, looking at the impresario side of things. Um, there have been some projects, quite a few projects. Uh, I mean, all through my career, I feel as though I've been pushing the envelope. I don't regret pushing the envelope. Um, you, but um, maybe there are a few times where I, I, I pushed it in a way that um, alienated uh, a prospective donor or, or a donor that was already a significant donor or something like that. Um, and I, I so without I, without revealing confidences, what are we talking about here? You 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 did a performance in a certain way that was controversial, like you just, or you you did an arrangement of music. Is it something that small, or is it you performed in a certain location, or you put someone at first violin who shouldn't have been? What what's the kind of sin that you're talking about committing? Uh, the one the kind I'm thinking of right now is uh, a financial one in which you know we we took on you know, as, as a small organization, we took on a really big project and we had to raise X number of dollars and I see that I maybe pushed, uh, some of our people, uh, a little, a little bit harder than they wanted to be pushed. And, um, I haven't, it hasn't happened so much in recent, you're not, that's not true. I think even, even maybe recently I may have pushed a bit hard on someone, not necessarily for a donation, but to, you know, uh, to, to attend, uh, a performance at a high, you know, at a high ticket level and things like that. So, um, it's, it's all a balance and, but I feel that I have learned in general that if something doesn't feel right in the, in the fundraising realm, if it doesn't feel right, that probably means don't go there. Uh, and I, I had to learn that the hard way a few times when I was starting out. And I think, Maybe maybe it slowed me down a bit, but I also think there's no other way to learn that. You know, there are a lot of things. Yeah, that's not so bad. Doesn't sound so bad. Sounds like you've done pretty good. If that's the worst of it, it sounds <laughs> like you've done pretty good. 
Um, what else? Um, well, people always say to me, uh, you know, there were a couple of early concerts where um, people said, you know, something didn't go well on stage. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm the conductor, so I'm not actually making the music. I'm, you know, inspiring the music, I would like to say, or leading it. But I'm waving my arms. I'm not actually making sound. So um, if something doesn't go well, you know, you could potentially just say, oh, well, you know, it was it was that player, you know, or it was that singer. But and, and you know, a couple of earlier performances, it wasn't that I would ever blame somebody on stage, but other folks would, would come to me and, and they criticize, say, gosh, you know, that that particular part wasn't great. But it wasn't you. It was the soloist. And I said, you know, well, who do you think cast that soloist? I mean, who do you think? worked with that soloist. I mean, everything that happens on stage, I consider to be my responsibility. And I think a lot of uh, even friends who come to see concerts don't realize that. But I also had to had to learn that a bit more early on and take and take a little more responsibility um, mm -hmm. in some of my earlier performances. Um, and I think I, I think years ago, I finally did embrace that. But it means making, you know, sometimes making hard decisions, you know, it means making a casting yeah. If, if I'm not feeling like something is going well, I will, because I was burnt a few times early on, I make that, I make those casting changes. I make those difficult decisions now because I don't want to get burned again. So <laughs> you can always learn that earlier. But again, I think, you know, it's, it's like Samari said, Pretty good. conductors have to learn by conducting. I think that was just a lesson I had to learn. Sounds pretty good to me. Let's go back to Russia for a minute. Yes. Um, Many things are unfolding in Russia, some very difficult things, and um, you're obviously invited or allowed to say or think whatever you want to think about it. Um, but this authoritarian moment, we can, even Russians agree it's an authoritarian moment. Is there anything that you saw over the years in Russia years ago that now in retrospect you understand was at the time consistent with what we're seeing today? Or do you think what we're seeing today is a kind of unrecognizable version of Russianism that you, you can't, in retrospect, map to what you saw when you were spending time in Russia as you did? The former. Uh, I, for people who say they're surprised at what's happening in Russia right now, they haven't been looking for the last 20 years. I mean, mm. it, it, this, what was happening now started when I was there, you know, I, I went as a student in 98, that was under Yeltsin. There was a sense of wild west, but also freedom in the air. It was actually exciting. I went back in 2001 and I could feel Putin had just started. 2000, 2001 was when I went back and, and it was right when he began. I immediately started to feel the air coming out of the room, the air mm. being sucked out of the room. I think, um, mm. it, you know, he did offer and, and for years did offer more stability, but at, 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 at such a high cost at, at bringing everything back under control of, of the government. And um, that, <laughs> 2001, 2002, 2003, I, I watched one radio station 
didn't pay their taxes properly, so we're taking them over. I remember NTV, which was Channel 3. I remember this. This is, I think, 2003. Um, was one of the major independent TV stations. I used to watch it when I was there. I mean, everybody did. And they found some reason to shut it down. And there were protests on the street. People knew this was bad. But um, we, that was, two, that was 20 years ago. I mean, we had won the Cold War. I just think we didn't want to look over here. And I think we're partly responsible. The West is partly responsible. There's much more we could have done early on. There's much more we could have done in the 90s and the early 2000s to prevent what's what's happened there, which is um, 20 years of, of just uh, the government taking more and more control and, and now having it be an outright autocracy. Uh, now there, I mean, I'm... I'm not really in touch too much with with players, but you know the the propaganda the level of propaganda is is powerful. I mean the propaganda is all consuming. So I almost I almost could understand how someone living there could see things differently than we see it here because the information they're receiving is so completely different. So it really is. It's very different. Yeah, I got into a I got into a battle. It was polite, but I was. Um... I was very firm in, in, in Davos, of all places, um, some years ago. The Russia Today channel was, in, was sent a crew, and I was like, I know I'm not doing an interview with them because they're propaganda. And I got into an email exchange with producers as well back in America saying it was propaganda, and they refused to, these Americans, Europeans, refused to acknowledge it. And then, of course, a few years later, it became explicit that it was propaganda. It became overt that it's propaganda. And, yeah. Um, um, do you, uh, sort of quickly, do you think there is, um, what's your prognosis? Did nothing changes till Putin dies or uh, do you have any guesses? I mean, this, I know this is not your field, but you're a thinking person. You're a reading person. You, you have exposure to Russia. You think about Russia. You have many Russian experiences and contexts. You speak the language. You can consume the media. Um, what's your prognosis? I do follow it every day. I feel very, um, emotionally involved with with that part of the world and um think that the ukrainians are, are being very heroic in defending their their land um i um i'm not i'm not sure where it, where it goes michael i'm i'm not it's, it's very hard for me to say uh but um i do uh, I do applaud the Ukrainians. Um, I think they're being very courageous. And um, I think that, um, you know, when when the war ends, I believe it will at some point. I don't know when. Um, I think that, um, I think, you know, listening to that part of the world will be very important. Particularly, in Western Europe and the United States, I think it's very important for us to listen to what countries who are right on that border and used to be under Soviet control have to say. I, they, uh, I, I find myself agreeing a lot with the leaders of Poland and Czech Republic and Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Um, and I think together with Ukraine and together with Russian leadership, uh, I would like to see there be some 
resolution. Changing gears for my last and final question. You're a very serious person, Stephen Fox. You do very serious things. You think so? Okay. <laughs> you, do you have a silly side to you? And if so, who gets to see it? Oh, yeah. My wife definitely sees it. Uh, my dog sees it. Uh, my wife and my dog, I think, both think I'm very silly. So. And is it, is it kind of silly baby talk with the dog and rolling around the floor with the dog? What's, what's it look like? I, I, I really don't want to share this publicly. It, it's too embarrassing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's already a lot because what, I, what I'm trying to highlight, and, and you shouldn't say anything you don't want to say, and I, I'm glad you said that you didn't want to share it as forthrightly as you did. What I'm trying to highlight is that there are so many very serious people in the world who are actually very silly uh, in their own time and have a very silly side. I find that routinely true. And uh, most of us go about our business and don't realize that these very serious people are also very silly. I, I find it almost invariably true. Um, <laughs> there, are some, there are some exceptions. The exceptions tend to be people who are uh, really hiding something in their lives. Yes. So they have to be buttoned up, you know, even in yep. their private lives. Yes. Um, and there are people who are silly who are also hiding things, but, but that's been my sort of personal observation. Okay. Oh, I'll share um, one thing. Steve, and this is sort of a, fun okay, thing. share one thing. Here we go. We opened you up. Share one thing. It's a Fox family thing. It goes back to my childhood. We're crazy with nicknames. We have the funniest, weirdest nicknames for each other. My father, my sister, and now I've, taking it into uh, our home here with Christina. And uh, so we have, we have, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to share the actual nicknames. Okay. But I will okay. tell you that they are very odd. <laughs> very odd. Okay. Well, we want to thank Stephen Fox, our marvelous guest, a genius, a brilliant man, um, an impresario and a maestro, as we learned, who gave some very revealing insights especially insights that a lot of our audience will not have a chance ever to hear because they don't follow classical conductors. I mean, who does? There are very few of you living in the world at this level. And so we got a level of excellence. And so there are, we got a chance to hear from you. Thank you, Stephen Fox. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you on this podcast. <laughs>